365 days a year. Welcome to Money Talk. We are live with a Zoom call and we're experiencing technical difficulties. So it will be an interesting first segment of articles with Neil um, unable to hear us. And so we're gonna we're gonna wing this. But we have a great guest with us today. We have Peter Rupert, who is the jack of all trades, and he runs the economic forecast which is a very vital part to talk about the economy here in local Santa Barbara. And he's also a former chair of the econ department out at UCSB. So Peter, thank you so much for being here with us. Great to be here, Diane. Thanks for asking me. Yes. And so, you know, I think in lieu of doing the articles today, given that we're experiencing these tech, this technical difficulty, we might just jump in and start our conversation with you, Peter. Sounds good. All right. Well, perfect. So, Tell us, I know that the economic forecast for our listeners, um, that normally how it operates is you have a mid-year um, update in January, and then you have a big event at the Granada Theater here in Santa Barbara and another big event up in um, Santa Maria. But this year, due to the COVID-19, um, in light of the COVID-19 situation and pandemic, um, what did you do to uh, accomplish the same goal, but in a safe environment. Well, um, that's right. So we usually do those things. And so there I was sitting in the Granada Theater all alone on May 7th, waiting for people to show up and no one showed <laughs> up, you know? So um, no, seriously. Uh, so we decided to you know, do a series of webinars. Um, we started off the first couple of webinars, um, you know, talking about the, um, you know, what's going on health-wise. We had Lynn Fitzgibbons from, from Cottage Hospital talking about, you know, where we stood in terms of beds and, uh, you know, how the virus was impacting uh, the health sector. And, you know, most of her news was good news in terms of, you know, what we wanted to do, Hello? you know, uh, what we wanted to do originally was, was, was flatten the curve. Um, and to flatten okay. the curve, um, basically, you know, what it meant was that, you know, fewer people are going to be sick uh, all at once, so we don't overwhelm the, the public health system. However, you know that also meant that uh, it's going to last a bit longer. Um, so anyway, that you know it was it was partially good news. We're not overwhelmed in our in our county, uh, you know, on, on the health side, and then on the you know on the economic side, you know, we then started having a couple what we call EFP informs, and they've been every other week on Thursdays. Um, uh, first one we did was with Paul Casey, uh, the city administrator, and Bob Stout, you know, basically talking about what the city was doing. And that was just before they decided that they'd be willing to close down State Street. So that was, been, uh, that was a very interesting conversation. Uh, at the time, Paul really couldn't say too much, but 
you know, the feeling was that they were going to close down State Street to cars and, and let people expand in, into the uh, drive into the roadway. Now, in, in watching that, you know, I know you're a big cyclist and you asked about cycling. Have you been down to State Street yet? I have. And, you know, I really think that it's a great opportunity for a local business. It's been happening. I think it's really worked based upon just anecdotal evidence. However, the biking situation is a little gnarly and you kind of got to watch yourself and make sure you don't get taken out yeah. <laughs> by, by a quick moving bicyclist. But no, other exactly. than that, you know, I really think that it's um, last week we had on the show Clay Holdren of Holdren's and he yep. said it has just been remarkable how much business he's gotten in the last since it's opened. And he's really um, hopeful that the city will continue the program even once we come out, out to the other side of this pandemic. Right. No. So back to the cycling so, you know, so what happened during our conversation with, with Paul Casey and Bob Stout? So Bob Stout is the head of the downtown Santa, uh, downtown organization. He owns- And also uh, the Wild, owner of the Wildcat. Wildcat, right. right. And so, the Little Kitchen. And Little Kitchen. So, uh, you know, in, in the conversation, I'm also on the mayor's task force for reopening. And there was, there's about 20, 20, 20 of us, a lot of business owners, hotels, uh, you know, pretty much, you know, people who have a say, uh, uh, you know, in, in the community. And, you know, we, we, we talked a lot about, you know, how long it's taken the city to do something like this. And what they basically said was, um, look, we know there's going to be issues. Um, let's get it open and then let's deal with the issues. So I'll talk about two. You mentioned one already. Um, so I went down there on the second day that it was closed to cars. Um, and because it was closed to cars, people were just walking randomly, you know, People were in the bike lanes, you know. Uh, in the middle of the, the street. That's where in I the like middle to of walk, the street, right no, down the everywhere. yellow. <laughs> everywhere. So that's why, you know, and then the bikes with families were coming down. And because people were in the bike lane, um, and by the way, because they repaved State Street, they, don't, they didn't really have the lanes marked out. And so what happened was bikes were just zooming down State Street, you know, weaving in and out. Um, and everyone knew that was not going to be a long run solution. That just can't happen. Um, and the second thing that was crazy was they had a red and green light on Carrillo and I think down maybe on maybe on Cota, I can't remember, but all the other ones were blinking red. The problem is that the pedestrians didn't pay any attention at all to the blinking reds. And so the cars were lined up to try to cross State Street, you know, and I could see them getting angry. They're like, you know, hey, hey, you've got a red light too, people, you know? <laughs> Right. So, but, you know, but I, so I think what's happened is now that some of the restaurants have expanded out into the street, like at Holdren's um, uh, Institution, Institution Ale, Ale, right. And then other places. So it makes it very hard for the bikes to go very fast coming down State Street, um, especially in those areas. So and you're right, you know, Holdren's was, was packed. Um, I wanted to get a pizza at Institution Ale. Uh, I got there at seven. They said I could get in at nine. It was wow. a two hour wait. Yeah. 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 And, you know, you know, going back to this, what, you know, what I think most people don't realize, um, you know, business owners want to make a living mm -hmm. and they're going to figure it out. So if you right. just back off, let them figure it out. And, and there's been some ingenious things that I don't think any of us, you know, or and politicians would have figured out how to how to do this. Um, and then the business has figured it out. And I think they're all doing pretty well. You know, I, I agree. And I think that what I've seen, and I don't know if, have you done any surveying yet on, on the State Street opening? Mm. We did a little survey um, 
So in our webinar, you can, in Zoom, you can do a poll. Right. I, I right. heard that you had some polling going on on that. So we did some polling. And the first, the first one we did was, was before State Street closed to cars. And we said, look, suppose if it opens, you know, um, and everybody is CDC compliant, everybody sanitizes, everybody does all the right things. How many people would be willing to feel comfortable going to a restaurant, say? And, you know, it was, you know, 30%. Yeah, it was 58%. I wrote that down when I, after I listened to it. 58% of people said that they were well, willing that was, to dine but, in. But, but that was after State Street opened. You know, the first one we had was, oh. suppose it doesn't open and you're kind oh. of crowded. But mm -hmm. now that it's open, you're right. It was 58%. So, so only a little more than half of the people feel comfortable, you know, still going out, uh, you know, to a, uh, to a restaurant, um, bar, you know, people, movies was like 95% of the people said they weren't going to go to a movie. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's scary. And, and by the way, you know, cases are still going up. I don't, right. I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's gotta be true that people have to, you know, remain vigilant. And if a second outbreak occurs, like it did in the 1960s, I mean, many people, you know, Neil's really old. So he remembers this kind of stuff. I mean, in, 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 in 57, 58, there was, uh, um, you know, the Asian flu H2N2 killed 116,000 Americans and then 68 to 70 killed another hundred thousand in, uh, the Hong Kong flu. And it was the second wave of, of, during 1970 that killed most people in Europe, for example, not in the US. So these second waves can happen. We have to be careful. Well, and it's, you know, the second wave, oftentimes, you know, it kind of it kind of goes, it, it, everyone's defenses are down because you've been so you've been so good, you've worn your face mask, you've stayed inside, you've been in quarantine, and then there becomes the fatigue piece of it, you right. know, and when you're asked to do it for too long and you're not seeing that it's that it's a problem, like when you looked at Santa Barbara City proper, I think we had only two new cases on Friday, which is remarkable and right. amazing and exactly what we wanted out of this lockdown, closed down quarantine. Um, it becomes very difficult for people to then do it again when the right. second wave does hit, which I think right. is why the numbers usually are worse in the second wave because people yes. just don't they can't do it anymore right and it, it, I, I liken it to budgeting you know when whenever <laughs> people say you know i'm never i'm not gonna buy anything i'm on this budget you know inevitably it's like a diet same thing i'm not gonna right. eat any chocolate and then all of a sudden you sit down with a big big bag yep. of candy and eat the whole thing exactly. so it, it's it's all about you know moderation and making sure people's needs are being met but in a safe capacity right I hate, you know, to, I, was, I hate to break up. This, oh, here's Neil. The, the, oh, Neil I, can hear us. I hate to break up this very depressing conversation about COVID, <laughs> uh, but we have to take a break. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invest 
invite you to visit the kellymarshteam.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. I wasn't prepared to be a caregiver to mom, but a little over a year ago, we realized she couldn't take care of herself without our help. And well, how could I not be there for her? I had no idea how hard it would be and just what I would need to know. Things I never thought of, like how to improve her mood and even for me, ways to stay positive. Luckily, I found the Caregiving Resource Center from AARP. It had articles about the basics that got me started but also information about the hurdles I was facing in this new role. I could even connect with experts and hear from others who had been in my place. I know this road we're on isn't an easy one, but I'm really happy to have the extra help for her and for me. Caregiving Resource Center at aarp.org caregiving. Articles, tips, and tools to help you both care for your loved one and care for yourself. This message is brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. And we can be reached, 805-564-1290. Neil, it's nice to have you back with us. And I just want everyone listening to know that you got your hair cut, because we spend a lot of time on this show talking about your hair, and it looks fabulous today. She charged me extra because it was three and a half months worth of hair. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're just joining us, we have Peter Rupert with us um, on the line and we're talking about the economic state of affairs. And, you know, Peter, let's transition for a minute from State Street. I'm sure we'll get back to it. But um, with the unexpected and better than expected unemployment figures on Friday, how do you make sense of it? And do you think there was an error in that reporting? Um, I've read some articles that says that there could be, it could have been, but it was basically all the economists were thinking there was going to be a downtick because keep in mind, this data was for May. It was not for June when most of the country was in re reopening mode. You know, do you think there was an error and how do you make a, you know, it's a 10,000 job swing, which is quite sizable. What do you think happens? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. I, I think that um, you know, let's start out with what happened when when people stopped going to restaurants and things like that. The people that lost their jobs were low income uh, waiters, waitresses, retail clerks. You know, all those things happened, which are jobs you can stop very fast. You just close the door. It's not like a manufacturing firm that you know they're still in the process. They're still making things. Um, so. That happened super fast. And then every economist was wondering, you know, how do we get a V-shaped recovery instead of a U-shaped recovery? You know, how do we get back quickly? Well, if, you know, if you think about it, I mean, you know, if those jobs were lost and then you reopen the restaurant before restaurants, you know, become bankrupt or before people find other jobs, um, you know, they can come back very fast. And I think that's exactly what happened. Once restaurants were like, 
you know, we can partially open, they rehired people. And so if you look at, uh, and there's two other little pieces of evidence that, you know, when we saw the 20 million people leave the labor market, lose their jobs, you know, what happened was real wages went up by more than they've ever gone up in the history of the series. And the reason real wages went up so much is because all the people that lost their jobs were low paid. And so now you just have a different sample. You just, you know, um, and now when they reopened, real wages fell uh, hmm, right. for exactly that reason. So, you know, so, you know, what we saw was, a you know, um, very quick. Um, now, maybe you saw today that the National Bureau of Economic Research announced the recession. Yes, uh, I did see that. That was going to be my next question is, yeah, so, you know, started now, in February. right, the recession started in February, which, you but know, let's, yeah. Let's get back to the measurement just for a second, because I do think, I don't think there was an error necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people lost their job, 20 million or so, and then we got, you know, um, uh, you know, people coming back. But I think what happened was the way that the Bureau of Labor Statistics measures unemployment is in their uh, in the current population survey, you know, they ask people what they're doing. And so, so now usually what happens is if someone loses their job, they ask them, are you looking for new work? And if you say yes, then you're considered unemployed. Mm, so you have okay. to be, you have to have been laid off or fired with no fault of your own. That is, you couldn't, you can't quit. And then you have to be looking for a job. So, so if those two things are met and available, if those things are met, then you're counted as unemployed. Okay. Um, now what happened this time is it's just really wacky. I mean, right. you know, so, so, so people, you know, they lost their job. Uh, however, the government through the PPP program was paying for firms to keep their employees. So now you have an employee at work, gets the survey uh, at home and says, are you working? No. Are you looking for work? No. Are you on layoff? Hmm. I don't know. You know, so, right. so I, I, I think a lot of people might have been, you know, just reporting wrong. And, and one reason well, and I say- it also didn't help with the six hundred dollar, um, exactly, you know, exactly. juice that happened in unemployment. That maybe they were on unemployment, but they're not looking for a job because the job that they would get would be paying them less than the unemployment. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, so that yeah, that was the point I was going to make next because what we saw was the largest uh, flow from being employed to not in the labor force we've ever seen. So right. usually you go through a period of unemployment. But instead, they were just out of the labor force, and those people were able to get unemployment insurance um, because of the, you know, the the, uh, the unemployment insurance program. And by the way, they fixed that part of the PPP, right? So, you know, so the way it worked was, if you, as a firm, you know, they're paying you to keep your employees, and the loan would be possibly forgivable if if employment didn't fall. Okay, so you don't get rid of your people. Um, right. So if you don't lay your people off and you continue paying them for the they next eight you. weeks, they'll, yeah. they, right. Right. However, what did that mean? It meant that because you got the $600 extras per week, if you were unemployed, firms were saying, okay, we're ready to go back to work. And the employees were saying, eh, not yet. I, you know, I'm, I'm cool. I'm making more than I was making when I was working. So they changed that. So they changed mm -hmm. it to mean that if you ask an employee to come back to work and they refuse, then it's okay to have lower employment and you can still get the loan forgiven. So oh. that was one of the things they changed. And, you know, and back to something you said earlier, you know, when this stuff happens so fast and we're making policy on the fly, just like state street, you know, 
<laughs> you don't know what all the unintended consequences are going to be. Um, so they, you know, they just opened the floodgates, you know, threw money at everything and we'll fix it later. But we can talk about going into debt too. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and when you, when you say that, I have to say, when I talk to my small business owners, they are all saying that it's very difficult to get people to work. You know, even Clay last week on the radio show from Holdren said, you know, he'd love to open up a, a big, the bigger space that he can, but he's having a real hard time getting his employees back. Oh, for sure. So, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. And now that $600 extra um, bonus, if you will, for the unemployment only lasts for eight weeks. Is that correct? Well, I think originally it was that um, that program, I think was going until July 1st. And I think they may have extended it. Oh, uh, okay. But I'm not positive. Uh, the PPP was that firms had to had eight weeks to spend the money. Mm, okay. So, can, so we look, can, can we look for a second at the demand side? Um, manufactured uh, new orders for manufacturers goods um, was in negative territory in May, uh, and it came. The index was thirty one point eight percent. Anything below fifty is not good. Uh, and um, basically, some of the you know well known companies, Chevron, IBM, Office Depot, uh, are all announcing more layoffs. And um, you know, one of the you know basics of economics one hundred and one is that uh, when you have a, a supply shock, it's possible to end up if the whole economy goes to have a demand shock also. And so, how optimistic should we be? Yeah, so you know, I think we're going to have a real hard time, you know, comparing this to other times of recessions. I mean, this was, you know, this was a government shutdown of business. And so, you know, so the demand side, you're right. The demand side fell like crazy, obviously. I mean, people, were, they couldn't go to restaurants. Um, you know, at the same time, um, you know, uh, except for toilet paper, which no one could get any for two, two months, um, you know, um, a lot of these supply chains were also broken. And so, you know, the supply side got hit as well. Um, now, you know, I think my view and... I guess the stock market view is that, you know, we haven't damaged the long run potential of the U S economy. Um, uh, you know, the stock market's back to where it was at the beginning of 2020, I think, and getting close to, uh, the S and P 500 up around 3,200. Um, so, you know, I think it was one of these things and there's different names for it. A friend of mine called it, um, a synthetic recession, right? It was made <laughs> up by the government. Um, somebody else called it the great suppression. Uh, so, you know, people just couldn't go out and spend, which was demand and then supply was also affected. So, you know, do I think we can get back? Um, I think the, the evidence from the employment sector looks pretty good and, you know, the housing market hardly got affected at all. So, um, you know, I, I think that most people realize that this is not going to be a long-term thing if we, if we maintain, you know, our vigilance about uh, a second wave. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jeff Devine from American Riviera Bank. 
all of our customers were once just like you, stuck with a bank that kept charging more for less. But when they finally made the decision to change banks, American Riviera Bank made the move easy with mobile deposit, online banking, free use of every ATM in the country, and a level of customer service that other banks dream of. Come in and make the move today in our downtown Santa Barbara or Montecito Upper Village branches. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people. Hospice of Santa Barbara is there to help when we're adjusting to living with a life-threatening illness, facing death, anticipating the death of a loved one, or healing our grief after a death. Hospice of Santa Barbara can provide the emotional, social, and spiritual care needed in a supportive, compassionate environment. Hospice of Santa Barbara provides professional counseling for individuals and has many support groups and programs for adults, teens, and children. Services are free made possible by our community's generosity and by all of the highly trained, wonderful volunteers that give her their time to help those in need. If you would like to make a donation, become a volunteer, or support the important work of Hospice of Santa Barbara, or find out more about hospice services for you or someone you love, please call 563-8820, 563-8820, or visit our website at www.hospiceofsantabarbara.org. In wildland areas, spark arresters are required on all portable gasoline-powered equipment. This includes tractors, harvesters, chainsaws, weed eaters, and mowers. Keep the exhaust system, spark arresters, and mower in proper working order and free of carbon buildup. Remember, one less spark is one less wildfire. The California Statewide Fire Prevention Program is grateful for your cooperation. Visit us on Facebook for more information. Welcome back to Money Talk. Neil is taking a vacation today. <laughs> he's in, he's out. Who knows where, where Neil is? <laughs> and so uh, you, we are sponsored by American Riviera Bank, and we are thrilled to have them as a sponsor. And Neil, are you with us now? I am. I'm still messing around with my... Uh, <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> when we're back and you're not back yet. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, actually, I was listening to a different show. <laughs> Are we boring you, Neil? Are you no, boring no. you? No, not at all. <laughs> so before the break, we were talking. Uh, we were talking about you know the supply and the demand side of things, and and the fact that you know. The economists now have officially deemed that we are now in a recession since since February. So, Peter, could you clear up for us what does that actually mean? What what data are they looking at from February? Because you know February's data was pre the government shutdown, right? So, you know what what they looked at basically was first quarter. Uh, so, first quarter GDP, uh, you know, fell by five percent. Uh, investment fell by about thirteen percent. And in the way that recession is called, by the way, it comes from the National Bureau of Economic Research. And it's a bunch of economists um, who sit around. I think they stop smoking cigars probably, but you know, they sit around talking about the data. And if they feel that there's a, a large enough set of data that, that looks bad um, in some dimension, there's no formula for it. Uh, they say we're in a recession. So um, many people believe, and it's false, that if we hit uh, two quarters in a row of negative GDP growth, we're automatically in a recession. 
That's not true. Uh, it, it can happen. Uh, there are sometimes, uh, 2000, 2001, for example, uh, GDP actually never fell in a quarter and they called a recession. Hmm. So here, here we had you know, a major drops in, in, in Q1 and we're probably expected to have it in Q2 uh, as well. But as I said earlier, you know, does it mean that you know, our, the economy's ability to produce goods and buy goods has been damaged? And as I said before, I think not. I mean, I think that firms can get back uh, if their employees, you know, come back uh, uh, to work for Clay, for example, um, right. people are gonna, and people go to restaurants. Now, the things that are going to be heard kind of long term, and, and we're seeing it, airlines, um, you know, they've just been crushed. Um, and, you know, will, will travel come back? Of course it will. But, you know, you have to ask yourself, would you get on a plane right now? Um, uh, and, you know, I, I've heard some good stories that you know, some people say. Anecdotally, that, I've had a lot yeah. of clients say that they, they are booking their travel and their summer travels going on as planned. And I right. even have one client who booked a cruise over Christmas. You know, okay. it, I, I, it, <laughs> like I think of that and I think, you know, I, I don't know how many people are going to want to do that. But these right. people seem to be moving forward with, with their lives. They are. And, you know, what I said earlier about businesses, I mean, you know, it's their livelihood and, and they're going to figure out a way to make you safe. And if you don't feel safe going into an airplane or going into a restaurant, you're not going to do it and they will go out of business. So, you know, it's up to them to make us feel safe. And, you know, I heard that, you know, I, I didn't know which airline it was, but, you know, someone traveled and said, I guess it was Virgin, I think, that every other aisle was open, middle mm -hmm. seats were open. Um, and there was like, you know, you know, 15 people on a 300 person plane or something. So that would be safe. The question is going through security. How do you feel about going through security? My guess is I haven't been to the airport, but I'm sure they're doing an amazing job, you know, in terms of, you know, sanitation and that kind of stuff. And then the flip side of that is though the customers may feel safe, is that really viable for these airlines to move, you know, to fly a 300 person airline with, you know, a hundred people on it? You know, how can they make that work? And that's, right. that's the other side of that. Well, they're not. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the, the government decided to bail them out, you know, big time. Um, uh, and, you know, so we'll see how that goes. But, you know, you know, as well as I do that, you know, you know, all of these things that we're doing, you know, someone's going to end up paying for it. Right. Right. And, well, and, and that's a great point. And segue into what do you think about the Fed? The Fed came out in the three quarters of the way through March, the third week of March, and basically said they're going to backstop everything. Uh, they're going to backst backstop corporate debt. They're basically created this artificial bottom in the markets by their, them saying they're going to provide liquidity. They're going to backstop, you know, triple B and up. Right. What, what do you make of that? Because, you know, at some point, you're right. Somebody's going to have to pay for it. Right. Well, you're, you know, you're right. So, so go back 2007, for example, the, the, the Fed's balance sheet was 800 billion. Uh, you know, and after uh, the Great Recession, you know, they, you know, they did a lot of things putting liquidity in the market that the balance sheet got up to, you know, 4 trillion. Now it's 7 trillion. Um, and again, they've been buying, you know, lots of mortgage-backed securities. They're doing all kinds of things. Um, that's not a long-run solution. Um, the Fed is going to, uh, they're already worried about the balance sheet before. Uh, and they're going to have to tell people how they're going to do this, get rid of these, these, these assets that they have. 
Now, what do you see as a viable option for them to get rid of them? Because if you think about it, from the time that they they were really um, adding to their balance sheet from the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, they really hadn't gotten rid of a lot of what they had gotten at that point. You know, it got up to $4 trillion, but right. it, they, you know, I, I didn't see an active way that they were reducing it during those 10 years of prosperity in, in public markets and, you know, economic growth. Well, the last few years they were, if you looked at, if you looked at their purchases of mortgage-backed securities, for example, and uh, agency debt. I mean, it was falling. Uh, it stayed well, some of it just about, rolled off though, right? As opposed well, to them but, actively doing stuff. Yeah, but their decision was not, for a while not to let it roll off. They would just repurchase mm -hmm. after it rolled off. And then they decided to just let it roll off. I think the average maturity, you know more, this more than I, I think the average maturity in the US is somewhere between seven and nine years uh, for this kind of debt. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you know, my guess is they'll, they'll start to let it roll off, um, but, you know, we might have to go into a new, new, new world where we just say, you know what, the Fed's balance sheet is going to be seven trillion dollars. And um, same, and the St. Louis, the St. Louis Fed said today, or at least their staff said, that they believe we should have negative interest rates. Now that's just the St. Louis Fed, but it's interesting that somebody with some authority is even bringing that up. Right. No, that's although Jerome Powell is on record as saying he is not for negative interest rates. So we'll see how that you know, plays out. Well, well, and Peter, given that you have worked at the Fed in, in your prior, prior life, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, what do you, what happens when you have an individual like St. Louis saying that and San Francisco saying something else, what use, usually creates the coalescing to get the Fed quote unquote, to say whatever the official word is? Well, it's the chairperson, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be Powell and they work very, very hard to, you know, to try to, you know, provide some clarity to the market. Uh, and if there's dissent, and there, there commonly is dissents, you know, whether they, they should raise or lower. Um, but if there are dissents, then the, then the market is like, okay, the Fed's not really really too sure what it is they're going to do. Uh, and that's not clarity. So the chair, uh, Jerome Powell, uh, you know, he'll work very hard to, you know, to get the group to agree. Um, my guess is that they have pretty much power. And so I would be probably shocked to see negative interest rates um, soon. Uh, so I think that they'll just, you know, they talk it out at their meetings. Um, as you saw, you know, they did a between meeting cut a few months ago, uh, mm -hmm. uh, which is rare. Uh, and again, that's, that's a big signal. It's, it's the Fed saying, uh-oh, you know, something bad's happening and we're going to have to step in uh, between meetings. So those things are all telling the market, you know, things aren't good. Uh, but as soon as we get some positive news, the stock market jumps right back. So, you know, um, you know, watching the market, I don't, you know, it's just, it's just too wild out there. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. 
Our plants and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Okay, forest animals, today is a new day. Kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow. Yes? Have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. Okay, River. Dude. How's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. Perfect for a little riverside shoeless relaxation. Ah, good. Owl, you here? Cool. Who's asking? I am. Look, you know the drill. Sleep during the day, scare the kids at night. Perfect. I love my job. Uh, Oak Tree? Sup? Still in the same place I left you last year. That's what I like. Consistency. Well, it's not like I'm going anywhere for the next couple hundred years. I know. I love it. Uh, Turtle. Turtle. He's not here yet, man. Ugh, he's late every morning. You'd think he would have learned by now to leave the night before our meetings. Okay. Squirrel, has anybody seen Mr. Squirrel? The forest has been preparing just for you. Visit a forest near you today. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Money Talk brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. So, by the way, everybody, uh, when I was uh, missing an action, I was looking on my uh, on the web, and there's a very interesting story about Keynes. Uh, someone wrote a book, and someone reviewed the book about. Keen's life and uh, what he really was trying to do. And I just thought it was really interesting. There was one quote that I, I'm sure, you know, Peter, you were probably aware of this, but I wasn't, which was that um, the thing he cared most about was a social upheaval and revolution. Uh, this is so interesting given what's going on today. He was as close to being a socialist as you, as you could have been and was very interested in equality and uh, felt that we had wars because of it. And we had all kinds of uh, risk of revolution. And, and that's it sort of made his in fact that was more important to him than economics, that whole uh, social issue. And I, th- I just think given the times and since we are now going back to Keynesian, a lot of uh, the uh, Keynesian economists are now becoming much more prominent given what's going on and the Fed shooting all of its powder. Uh, it's just interesting that that's what he was all about. Right, no, it's it's, it's true. And I, I think that, you know, it, it wasn't that he cared more about that than economics. I mean, that was really part of his whole, you know, his whole goal that, um, you know, so why do we need to do this? I mean, number one, he thought that the, the economy could get stuck um, in and of itself, and it took a government to get it out. Um, and by the way, that's the big fight, right? That's the big fight between that um, goes on today uh, between Keynesians and non-Keynesians, you know, neoclassical economists that, you know, believe that, you know, we should have very little government in terms of trying to fix things, um, you know, trying to pump money into the economy, trying to choose winners and losers, et cetera. Um, you know, those things are very, very difficult. Uh, but, you know, Neil, back to what you said, um, you know, inequality, um, you know, it, it we have lots of data that shows that you know inequality increases crime, 
inequality can cause revolutions. And if you don't believe me, you can go to uh, look up Gini coefficient in, and you go to Wikipedia and you'll see that the CIA calculates Gini coefficients that is measures of inequality. And the reason the CIA does it is that those countries that have huge inequality are pretty much ripe for, uh, for revolution. And that was what Keynes was saying a long time ago. And so given, you know, as we transition and, and we're now on, what is it, the 10th day of protests uh, across the United States, what do you see that, what type of economic impact do protests and, and what we're seeing actually have? You know, that's, that's, you know, I haven't seen any real data on that. I mean, you know, first of all, we have to, you know, it, it, it's a very sad time, very upsetting time, um, you know, to see what's going on out there. Um, I have to say that the the demonstrations we had here in Santa Barbara, you know, not only were they peaceful, but um, everyone was wearing masks as well to make sure that, you know, that they're not going to infect other people. Um, so, you know, now you start to read things about defunding police, changing the way of police behavior. Uh, and, you know, one of the big, you know, articles I read had to do with uh, the police union and, you know, the strength of the police union. That um, was very hard to get change within police departments. So I think, you know, we're probably going to see some some major changes uh, in the way police departments are, 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 are overseen and, you know, how they're funded. So I think we're going to start to see that. Yeah, the cry for defunding, um, I struggle with, given that what I think needs to happen is is more training and more education. You know, when I look over to um, to Sweden, for instance, their their police force goes through two years worth of training before they ever hit the street. And ours, I think, goes through eight weeks here right. in, in Santa Barbara. And so th that's a huge difference. And additionally, when you look at Sweden, people want to become a police officer. And it's a, it's a sought-after job. And they do a lot of weeding out during that two-year right. training period. And so I would think that what we'd want to see is not defunding, but rather more training and more education, which is going to take more money. Well, that's... I was banking on that's what they meant by defunding. You know, I was banking on they meant that, um, you know, they're going to fund a different kind of, of police force. It's going to be, like you said, more educated, uh, going through longer training. And I just I, I read recently there was a, a little article that came out about Camden, New Jersey, where they changed. Yeah, where they changed the, uh, the police force. They didn't defund the police force. They just said, OK, we're going to have a new police force that's better trained. Um, you know, uh, more compassionate, you know, whatever. And murder's gone down a lot. You know, complaints have gone down a lot. Um, so, you know, I, I think we will see change. Uh, in terms of the aggregate economy, I, I, I don't think that there's much evidence that protests do a lot um, in the aggregate. Right. And it, it's interesting. Um, uh, a friend was talking about what he thought would be a, a good thing to do um, in the police force is maybe do something with business like like the opportunity zones to get businesses to go into, you know, lower socioeconomic areas and start building pride through employment of people in those areas. And, you know, if that could take a hold in addition to the tr increased training and or different training and education of the police force, I think it, it could, it could be make great strides to bring our, our um, society, move it forward. No, I agree I, with that. I usually, I usually side, believe it or not, with the union, and I think the defunding is a way of sort of defunding the union rather than the police, because the unions tend to 
support the activities of the police, irrespective of what they do. So the police uh, probably feel that and the, and the current laws that protect them probably give them a sense that they can do what they want to do. And when they're afraid, they do what they want to do. So I, I think the idea here is to get a new, new quote unquote, new police force is really to, to take away the power of the union and say to their police on the street, if you want to have a job, you're going to have to listen to what the society wants, not what the union wants. I think that's right, Neil. I, I agree. Um, and it's going to be a tough fight that the police unions, it's big and it's strong. Um, and, you know, it's listened to by lots of politicians. But I think you're exactly right on that point. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, the, the irony of it is it's really difficult to imagine being a police person. It's, you know, you walk into essentially every day the worst of the worst. So um, I have a lot of uh, compassion for them. It's just that you need to make sure that the system permits the bag, the bag, police to be weeded out. And that has not happened. Uh, and Excellent. so this is, I think, a moment in time that I've never seen. I, I really think this is going to make a difference. Right. I agree with that. I think, and by the way, I think it's going to have to really start at the community level. I don't think it's going to be a top-down change. I think the community like Santa Barbara has to say, you know, we want police that are here to help us and not to be standing looking for, you know, for, for the next criminal that comes along. And it's happened. I, I spent some time uh, with my son in Ox in Oxnard, taking him to hockey, and uh, I would go to the collection mall there, and the police would ride around on bicycles, and they would stop, and get off the bike, and sit down at Starbucks, and talk to the residents. What are you guys doing? What do you need? You know, how can we be of help? Uh, and I just thought it was so eye-opening. You know, that here they were; they weren't trying mm -hmm. to bust anybody. They were like, you know, um, trying to be part of the community, which I think we really need. Well, you know, community policing really works. Apparently in New York, in the places that had community policing, they had almost none or very little riding two weeks ago. It, they, there is a, a trust that gets built. So it, it's not that we don't have the solutions. We just needed the will to actually implement those solutions. Right. Right. Absolutely. And and so, you know, when we look back to to Santa Barbara and and what have you found in terms of the stats, given that North County and South County's COVID-19 stats, even if you take the jail out of it, are starkly different? What, do, do you see the two, we are one big county, but do you see the North County and South County, how do you see us dealing with it and how do you see us getting out of it if, if it's the same solution or if it's different? Yeah, you know, you're right. I, in, I, I've looked at it a lot, North you know, the difference between the North County and South County, they are as different as any two places you could imagine. I mean, in terms of incomes, education, age, health, immigration, you name it. I mean, it's just, you know, they're completely different. And, and you know, one thing I, we need to do is, you know, we need to come together as a county. Um, and there's lots of issues, you know, that, uh, you know, in North County that we don't have in South County. Um, and, you know, if you look at, you know, things like nonprofits, you know, most of the nonprofits are here giving giving aid here. Um, and, you know, so one thing I'm doing, you know, with what we call the Community Indicators Project, I need to know, you know, for nonprofits, where's the money going? Because all they're all headquartered in South County. So it looks like all the money is coming into South County. But the question is, where is it going? And so, you know, I think that, you know, things like health status, which is much lower in, in North County, uh, you know, those things just have to be addressed. Uh, uh, if you look at 
you know, number of residents, uh, number of people per household, per room. It's like double in North County what it is in South County. So again, there's lots and lots of issues. Um, you know, how, how is it going to come together? You know, I'm not sure because it's structured so differently. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back with our final segment. Hi, I'm Jeff Devine from American Riviera Bank. All of our customers were once just like you, stuck with a bank that kept charging more for less. But when they finally made the decision to change banks, American Riviera Bank made the move easy with mobile deposit, online banking, free use of every ATM in the country, and a level of customer service that other banks dream of. Come in and make the move today in our downtown Santa Barbara or Montecito Upper Village branches. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people. For prospective homebuyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the KellyMarshTeam.com or call Call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. Every time. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Stewart, a certified appraiser of fine art and antiques. Join me Fridays at 10 a.m. for the Art and Antiques Radio Show, where we'll talk with the movers and shakers of the art and antiques world. Join us Friday at 10 a.m. and 8 p.m. and Sundays at 11 a.m. for the Art and Antiques Radio Show, right here at AM 1290, the Santa Barbara News Press radio station. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial competency. And so earlier in the show, we were talking about the closure of State Street to uh, traffic and opening it to pedestrians, bicycles, and allowing restaurants to really move their operation outside to allow for that six feet table space. And, you know, in the short term, anecdotally, it seems like it's working. It seems like downtown is happening more than ever um, that I've seen, you know. Now, as we transition from, do you think it's happening from locals or do you think you're seeing more of LA County, which has been closed to restaurants up until this point, really infiltrating and it's tourism, again, as opposed to local people, Peter. What are, what are you seeing? I see a bunch of local people. I, I, I usually go to places that the tourists wouldn't go to, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, and it, it seems very local to me. Um, but, you know, one thing we need to talk about just quickly is we've done this for State Street, you know, but there are a lot of streets that are hurting. There are a lot of streets that could use these kind of things. And, you know, it would be hard to close Milpas, for example, um, 
you know, but one thing that could be interesting, which, you know, if you travel around the world, there's all these cities that have little neighborhoods that like have one street closed where there's a bunch of restaurants or things, you know, so I think it's going to be an experiment that we're going to see become, you know, enlarged. I think more people are going to say, hey, how about my little neighborhood? You know, my, my stores, my restaurants. Um, you know, and the other thing they've done is, you know, sure, State Street's closed to cars, but how about places like um, on Coast Village Road, for example, you know, they have parklets now, right? They're, they're allowing some restaurants to take over a few parking spots um, and, and, and move out there. You know, so these things are all making it, I think, much more community feeling, you know, it's more fun. Uh, a lot of people out there walking around, seeing each other. You're just not driving to a place, getting out of your car, going in and leaving. So that's what I think is going to uh, be a big change. And do you, do you see that city council is, you know, I, I think the current, um, the current vote was through Labor Day. Is that correct? Yeah. And then the thought was that it might go back to being a, you know, a, a street with, with vehicles on it. Um, how are they going to make that decision? How, given that you're on the mayor's task force, have you talked at all about what um, are you, is, are there metrics or, you know, how, how is it being measured, I guess? Yeah, I don't think there's any metrics yet, but I think that, you know, people, you know, basically on the task force, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but, you know, mostly see it as a very, very good thing. And a lot of want to keep it going forever. You know, the council obviously wants to be sure that, you know, that things are working well. Uh, and, you know, they have a lot of things to think about in terms of traffic flow and safety, you know, those kind of things. I mean, you know, uh, going down toward the bottom, I mean, there was, they, they were thinking of closing off the 400 block as well, but it turns out, you know, there was many issues about uh, fire trucks coming down, uh, Chapala, for example, and having to go with, you know, go into, uh, uh, go down to the beach. So, you know, so I have a solution to that. So, Peter, you know, yeah. thank you so much. You are our favorite guest. You always yeah. <laughs> have something intelligent to say. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next week. It's 3.05.